Well, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20 is what we'll be looking at this morning. And as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed this morning, it would be to us as though God himself were speaking and not me. We know that the preaching of your word, Lord, is no trivial matter. You call us to respond to your words. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive your truth this morning. And Lord, I also just want to take this time to pray for our dear friend Diane, who is in the hospital struggling to breathe. Lord, we pray for your mercy upon her life. We pray for the doctors that are trying to help her. We pray, Lord, that even in your mercy now, that you would shine the light of Christ into her soul, that she might look to Christ, her Savior. Pray, we pray this, Lord, for your glory and for Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we learned about John the Baptist, who was given the task of preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. And this was all done in fulfillment of prophecy, those two prophecies in Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40. And Jesus shows up in chapter 1 and he was baptized by John. And in his baptism we saw the commissioning of the Father in sending forth his Son, the Lord Jesus, as the suffering servant to accomplish his ministry, which, will we, know, which we know will culminate in his death and in his resurrection. And this Death and resurrection is prefigured in his baptism where he descends under the water. He purifies sin and then he comes up out of the water as a new creation. And then we saw he entered into the wilderness by the Spirit of God and he was tempted by the devil for 40 nights. Which we know is a foreshadowing of really the whole narrative of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has come to make war upon his enemies. He will prevail against them, and not through violence, but sacrifice. And so in verses 1 through 13, we, we see the preparing of the Son of God for the task that is before him. And here in verses 14 and 20, really what we see here is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So verses 1 to 13 is just preparation, and here is the beginning of his ministry in verses 14 to 20. Now these verses, uh, chapter 1, 14 and 20, they fit into a wider section of Mark from basically chapter 1, verse 14, all the way to chapter 8, verse 26, which is the confession of Peter about who Jesus Christ is. So chapters 1, verses 14 to chapter 18, 8, verses 26, is Jesus' public ministry focused in the region of Galilee. Now Mark, in this wider section, what he's really trying to do in those eight chapters 
is to establish the authority, the authoritative ministry of Jesus as the Son of God. And as we'll see, he's going to demonstrate this in several different ways within these next eight chapters. But here in 14 to 20, we see the beginning of Jesus' authoritative ministry. And the first thing we see is that Jesus brings a message about a kingdom. He brings a kingdom message. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now this statement is signifying that John's ministry has now been fulfilled. He's been arrested, he's accomplished his purpose, and now Jesus' ministry as the Son of God will begin. And I think there's a little foreshadowing here with John's imprisonment. In other words, John, who is the greatest among men, his ministry ends in death, and so the Son of God, who will then take up the next part of the ministry, so to speak, his ministry will also end in death. So, John's ministry has been fulfilled. Jesus' ministry as the Son of God now begins. And as we see here, his focus will be in the region of Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem. Almost all of his ministry will occur here in the Gospel of Mark. Before he sets his face toward Jerusalem, where his ministry will reach its culmination in his death and resurrection. So John's arrested, and we're told Jesus enters into Galilee. And what is he doing, according to verse 14? He's proclaiming the gospel of God. This was his primary focus. He was a preacher. And his message was the gospel of God, the good news of God. Now in verse 15, we're given a summary of what this good news was. So Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is his kingdom message. And there are three aspects to his message. There's the fulfillment of time. There's the nearness of the kingdom. And there's what, ought people, what people ought to do in light of this reality, this coming kingdom. So first, the time is fulfilled. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, this statement carries with it the idea that the fulfillment of the prophetic hope regarding the Messiah and his salvation has now arrived. It's no longer something to look forward to, but it's something that is now happening. The time is fulfilled. All that was prophesied in the Old Testament is now happening. This is the decisive moment of redemptive history. Because the decisive figure of redemptive history is now here. This becomes all the more clear with the next clause, right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Or probably more clearly stated... The kingdom of God has come near. Now, what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean that it's come near? Well, the idea of the kingdom in the scriptures is dynamic and it's multidimensional. It can refer to many different things that are all interconnected. 
It can refer to God's sovereign authority and reign over all the cosmos in the present. But it also refers to his reign, specifically in the face of Jesus Christ, in the future. It can be in reference also to God's spiritual authority in the lives of his redeemed people. So we could summarize the idea of the kingdom of God as something that is present and future. It's a reign and it's a realm. Remember Jesus before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. In the gospel of Mark, we actually see this this multi-dimension to the kingdom. Jesus' message of the kingdom often in the Gospel of Mark, is present. It's happening right now. But he also speaks of it as something that's in the future. There are several places where he speaks of the kingdom coming in the future in power. But there's also present realities to the kingdom as well. He speaks, for example, of receiving the kingdom like a little child. Or he speaks of the difficulty of the rich entering into the kingdom Presently, In some of his parables, he describes the kingdom like a seed that then turns into a plant and then the harvest. In other words, he describes the kingdom as this slow-growing process. Also, we, we can say, and so we can say that the kingdom is now, but not yet. It's a mysterious paradox. The kingdom is present. It has come near, but it's not fully here yet. But here's what we have to ask. Why has it come near? Why has it come near? Well, the answer is quite simple. Because the king has become present. The kingdom has drawn near because the king has drawn near. In Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God is personified in the person of Jesus Christ because he is the king of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about Christ's reign breaking into human history and overthrowing the powers of darkness. He will lay siege to the domain of Satan and sin. He will oppose those who oppose his reign. He will liberate those who embrace his reign. He will liberate them from sin and death. And so as the narrative unfolds, we're going to see just how the nature of the kingdom is displayed in the words of Christ and in the acts of Christ. And we'll discover a kingdom that is utterly unique from all earthly kingdoms because central to Christ's kingdom isn't power and force, but it's charity and sacrifice, which which will be epitomized in his death. So the time is fulfilled, the kingdom has come near, so what ought to be the response of the people to the message of his kingdom? Well, the answer, Jesus says, is repent and believe in the gospel. There are two things that people must do in light of the arrival of the king, repent and believe in the gospel. That is the good news of the coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom, hear this, demands response from every single human being. Repentance and faith is that response. 
Repentance is the, the idea of turning one's heart from sin and turning one's heart to Jesus. I remember my dad telling me a little bit of him growing, his growing up experience. And my dad was a hippie, grew up in a broken home and was engaged with drugs from a very young age and had the long hair down to here. And, but he came to faith when he was 17 years old. And he came to faith when he was at his uncle's farm in London. And when he came back to Toronto, he was invited by one of his friends to come to his home for a party. And of course, at this party, there were lots of different immoral things taking place. And he had literally just been a Christian for about a week at this point. So none of his friends knew or anything like that. So he showed up to the party. And he remembers that, of course, drugs were offered to him and a lot of other things were offered to him. And he remembers in the midst of the room with his friends, there was just this moment in his heart where he said he knew he could not engage in this anymore. And in that very moment, he decided, I'm done with this. And he walked out, he left the party, never to return to that lifestyle again. That's the picture of repentance that the Bible puts forward in the scriptures. You're living a certain way. You're, you're living for something. You're engaged in something. You're devoted to something. But then Christ intervenes. And it causes you to turn. It causes you to turn from the thing that you once treasured and devoted and were devoted to. And now you are devoted and given over to Christ. So Jesus calls us to repent. But he not only calls us to repent. He also calls us to believe. To believe. Now, this isn't mere intellectual affirmation. It's trust in such a way that it forever changes the course of your life. It dictates, this belief dictates who you will become and how you will live. It declares you now swear allegiance to the king of the kingdom. You've become devoted to him and his kingdom purposes. Every single one of us, every single human being is called to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. It is placed before each of us. But we need to ask a question because it's assumed in the passage. Why is the coming of the kingdom good news? Why is it good news? Well, it's because of what the kingdom is, what the nature of the kingdom is. See, the coming of the kingdom of God is understood as God's salvation for the cosmos and humanity. The coming of the kingdom is God's announcement that all that's wrong in this world will be fixed. But the central means by which this will be accomplished is through the death of the king, not through his reign. The death of the king will be his triumph over Satan, sin, and evil. Through his act of humiliation and sacrifice, his kingdom will be established, for one must have a people to be a king. And through his death, he will redeem a people who will reign with him in his kingdom. And as the narrative unfolds, we'll, we'll begin to see at work through Jesus' teaching and through his miracles the nature of this kingdom. 
He will demonstrate his power over diseases. He will demonstrate his authority in his teaching. He will demonstrate the ethics of the kingdom. He will demonstrate his authority over demonic powers. But the triumph of the kingdom will be his death and resurrection. That's why the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom, is good news. Because it will be the overthrow of evil. Now another important question that we need to ask is this. If the coming of the kingdom is good news, then why does one need to repent? How is that good news? Why would good news demand repentance? Good news often requires celebration. But Jesus says, this is good news, therefore repent. Why is it good news? Why does it demand repentance? Well, the call to repentance is and of itself good news. The call to repentance is an act of the king's mercy. The king is giving people an opportunity to respond to him rightly. Think historically about kings and kingdoms and and when a king and his kingdom would would take his army and, and seek to conquer another kingdom. What happens usually? Well, the the army is is on the doorsteps of the city. And the king will tell the people in the city that if they surrender, they'll survive. But we know from history that their survival is often viewed as worse than than death itself. Their survival is often viewed as hell because even though they may survive, they will inevitably be taken as slaves and treated horrifically by this new king that has conquered them. They will never be considered citizens of this new king. They will never be shown respect or dignity. But the kingdom of God The kingdom of Jesus is utterly unique. Jesus' call to repentance, to surrender, is an act of mercy to rebellious sinners. His call to repentance is an invitation for rebel scum to become full citizens and participants in his kingdom. It's a call for rebel scum to become sons and daughters in his kingdom, and therefore fellow heirs. It doesn't matter who you are or your life circumstances. Repentance is necessary for every single human being who may enter into Christ's kingdom because we've rebelled against the king. Jesus demanded that the oppressed repent and he demanded that the oppressor repent. He demanded that the rich repent, and he demanded that the poor repent. No one is excluded from this call to repent. The helpless paralytic must have his sins forgiven, and the self-righteous Pharisee must have his sins forgiven in order for entrance into the kingdom of Christ. This is why the coming of the kingdom and the call to repent is good news. He is granting opportunity for every single human being to respond rightly. You know, it's interesting. There's this uh, 
There's this growing phrase that's, that's being used quite often in our society, especially by our secular elite. And the phrase is being on the right side of history. Our prime minister has used it quite often. And really what they mean by that, whether they realize it or not, is being on the right side of history is agreeing with them or with the majority. But the assumption in that statement is that humanity is the ultimate governor of history. May I suggest to you that if you want to be on the right side of history, then align yourself with the Lord of history, the one who governs and directs all according to his purposes. There is one kingdom that is eternal. There is one king who will have dominion over all earthly kingdoms, and that is Jesus Christ. It is his kingdom that shall reign forever, and he summons all of us to enter into his kingdom by repentance and faith, and in that kingdom we shall find life. Jesus is calling us. He's inviting us sinful rebel creatures to share and participate in the overwhelming goodness and beauty of his kingdom. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is Christ's kingdom message. This is what we see here in verses 14 to 15. But secondly, in this passage, we see Christ's authoritative call. His authoritative call. Look at verses 16 to 20. Passing along the side the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So we have this scene that Jesus is going alongside the shore of Galilee, and he sees these two men, and he calls them, Simon and and Andrew. And Simon, of course, we know who is Peter. And then he goes a little further, and he calls James and John, and he calls them to the same task. So at the outset of his ministry... He's beginning to establish his inner circle, which will be the foundation for the church. Why? The apostles are the foundation for the church. But sometimes the significance of a text lies in what's not there. We're not really given a background to these men that Jesus calls. We know they're fishermen, that's about it. We're not given info on whether they had encountered Jesus previously Did they see his baptism? We don't know. Did they hear some of his message from verses 14 to 15? Possibly. They they probably had some limited knowledge of who he was. And I think this reveals all the more the significance of Christ's call and their response to his call. There's an authoritative nature to Christ's call that demands immediate response. 
Mark, in in the following verses and in the chapters ahead, seek to establish the authority of Christ as the Son of God. And I think he begins here with the simple words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Those whom he calls will follow. Christ will not fail in his call. He has an authority within himself. And when he calls a man, follow me, they come. His speech carries with it power and authority. This is why later on, the people, when they hear his teaching, they marvel because he is one who speaks with authority, not like the scribes. Now, there are two things that Jesus states one, that we must do, and two, that one, he, that he will equip us to do. First, he tells us that we must follow him. And then he tells us he will make us fishers of men. In other words, as king, there's a call upon our lives to follow Christ no matter wherever it may take us. And as citizens in his kingdom, we've been given a task to catch others and to bring them into his kingdom. Now this phrase, fishers of men, though it's a play on words, because the men whom he called were fishermen, there's actually more significance to it. In the Old Testament, there are several places where the metaphor of fishing and being caught is use. And it's always, it's always in the context of judgment. In other words, Jesus is giving this task to his disciples to catch other men because of impending judgment. Sometimes as Christians, we forget this. We can lose sight of this. I lose sight of this. Sometimes we don't want to think about it because it's not a popular idea. But Jesus makes clear that righteous judgment is coming. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to prepare people for that day of God's righteous judgment. So here we're confronted with Jesus' authoritative call. He calls us, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the question that is laid before each of us is this. How will we respond to his call to follow him? How did these four men respond? And this leads to my third point, which is we see a disciple's radical response. A disciple's radical response. Both events where Jesus speaks to to Simon and Andrew and also to James and to John, both of them immediately drop what they are doing and they respond in radical obedience to the call of Christ. As verse 18 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. There was no consultation with family or friends. 
There was no, will my wife approve of me following Jesus? There was no, will this be conducive for my career ambitions? There was no, will this make me better off financially? There was no dialogue or rationalizing with Jesus. This was not an invitation to dialogue. This was a trumpet of authority. Come and follow me. They heard the authoritative call of Christ and they dropped everything and followed him regardless of the consequences. And they didn't know yet just how severe the consequences would be. Each of them would die for their faith, except for John, but he would experience basically death. It's hard to grasp how radical these disciples' response was without understanding the cultural values of the day. Their culture was drastically different than ours. At that time, familial connections, family duty, were far more important than one's individuality. If your father was a fisherman, you'd become a fisherman if you were his son. If your father was a carpenter, you become a carpenter. Duty to family outweighed any notion of individual pursuits. And this is why the information Mark gives of of these James and John leaving their father Zebedee is so significant. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. This would have been culturally offensive for them to do. Here's a rabbi calling fishermen to follow him, and they leave their father, the business, the the career that, that they're supposed to replace their father with, and they follow this rabbi, this teacher. This would have been utterly offensive for them to do. But our modern secular society is the opposite. Today... The message is not duty to family, it's, it's commitment to self and one's dreams. In other words, duty to family is oppressive. And what we need to do as individuals is liberate ourselves from the expectation that family and friends place upon us, to free ourselves from those expectations. I, I must pursue my dreams and be true to myself even at the expense Of my family. I don't think we can see this any more clear than this past week. The uh, Golden Globe Awards happened, and the actress Michelle Williams won a a Globe and Gold Award, and she got up there. She said some insightful things, and and then she made the statement, and I'm just going to summarize what she said. But she basically said, The reason I was able to win this award was because I had the right as a woman to an abortion. In other words, she had an abortion, and because of that, she was able to pursue her career in acting. But underlying that statement is this assumption that somehow her fulfillment and her dreams and her ambitions are so important that it would be better It would be actually a moral duty to kill the child in her womb than to give up her pursuit of her dreams. That's 
the message of our culture. Remove the barriers. Get the thing that's out of the way from keeping you from pursuing your dreams. If it's your parents, be done with them. If it's your children, spend a little bit of time with them. Now, which way of thinking is right? The traditional way of thinking? Duty to family? Or commitment to self? Well, in one sense, neither are right. If either of those become ultimate, they become idols, and they must be destroyed. Now, depending on who you are in this room or who your parents are, you're probably familiar with both of these realities. If you're Canadian and you're born here, whereas your parents are not from Canada, there's probably an expectation for you to fulfill your duty to your family. If you come from a more traditional culture, over and against your duty or your desire to pursue your dreams. But here's the glorious thing about Jesus Christ and his call to follow him. In his call to follow him, he destroys both these forms of idolatry. To the familial traditionalists, Jesus shatters the notion that one's ultimate duty is to family. For there's a superior authority at work that demands a greater allegiance than family. And some of you in this room, you have experienced the consequences of following Christ at the expense of losing your family. Yet you know it's worth it. And on the other hand, those of us who have swam in the cesspool of modern secularism, Jesus comes to actually shatter our dreams. He comes to shatter our commitment to self. And he says, come and follow me. Be devoted to me. Be devoted to my purposes. Be devoted to my kingdom. And the reason he can do this is because of who he is. He alone is worthy to demand such an allegiance. For he alone is king of kings and lord of lords. And the glorious thing about this call to follow him is that in following him, he will give you new dreams, everlasting dreams, far surpassing dreams, ones that will find true experience of freedom and life. This is Discipleship 101. Discipleship begins with hearing the voice of Jesus and following him. And the rest of Mark's gospel will discover the fullness of what that following him is all about. Now kids, I want to speak to the kids for one minute. I want you guys to listen carefully, okay? You're young. And I want you to know that following Jesus doesn't have to wait until you're in high school or university or until you're an adult. Following Jesus can begin today. Do you know why we have you in the service on Sunday morning? You're all shaking your head. Because I think you're more capable than our society thinks you're capable of. 
I think you have the ability as kids to hear God's word, to listen to it, to seek and ask questions, and Lord willing, to cry out to Jesus for salvation. That's why we have you in the service. This service is not just for the adults. It's for the kids as well. And so I want to challenge you this morning to when you hear the word of God preached, to listen and to ask questions, to go to your parents. I heard this from the sermon. I didn't fully understand it. I didn't fully understand a lot of it because Peter wasn't all that clear. But I have these questions. And you can come and speak to me. I am happy to sit down and talk with you about God's word. I realize I might seem a little scary up here, but I'm not that scary. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. The culture will tell you, be kids forever. Live for yourself. And I'm telling you that that life is not satisfying. Following Jesus is the greatest thing you can ever do. So today, seek to follow Jesus. Give your life to him. And this is the question that's laid before all of us. Will we follow him or not? Will we bow our knee and declare, not my will, but your will be done? This is a disciple's radical response. We hear the voice of the king and we follow in full obedience to him. May that be true of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, before we can ever lead, we must be followers first. Followers of Christ and fishers of men. Make that true of us. Of, make that true of us this morning, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.